0: Okay, turn with me to Matthew 10. We started last week looking at verses 16 to 23, and uh, we will continue with that today. Uh, we see that in, the, in these verses, Jesus first gives us an analogy of believers and their opponents, and then he illustrates the attitudes we're to have as we face those opponents. So that's That's all in verse 16. And then in verses 17 and 18 he mentions the two primary areas from which attacks against believers will come. And then verses 19 and 20, he promises God's provision for dealing with those attacks. And finally in verses 21 to 23, he mentions the two primary areas of indirect attack and tells his followers how to respond when persecution comes. Uh, so look there at the beginning of verse 16, just reviewing. He says, "Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves." And as I pointed out last week, notice that he says in the midst, not into the midst. We are already in the midst of the wolves. The godless world around us is already like a pack of wolves surrounding us, seeking to destroy us. Uh, the, sometimes even the wolves aren't just outside around us, they're inside with us uh, in Acts twenty twenty nine, Paul says, I know after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Uh, Matthew seven fifteen speaks of false teachers being wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, they disguise themselves as true shepherds, they're just wolves in shepherds' clothing. So Jesus' message here isn't the world's way to win adherence. Uh, the world talks about ease and comfort, riches, advancement, ambition. Jesus offers hardship and death. Uh, In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Somewhere in the world at all times the church is being devoured by wolves. Uh, If we're definitive with our faith, there's always a price to pay. Uh, You cannot confront a God-hating world without a reaction. Uh, If we're were more open and forthright about what we believe that God's Word teaches, the world would be persecuting us more. Uh, so the analogy Jesus uses is that of sheep surrounded by wolves, and then he goes on to explain the attitude that we're to have in that situation. The end of the verse says, "So be as shrewd as be shrewd as serpents, and innocent as doves." Uh, in the ancient world, as portrayed in Egyptian hieroglyphics and other ancient lore serpents were thought of as shrewd smart cunning clever and cautious so jesus says that in that sense christians are to emulate them Uh, servants of the lord are to be shrewd and clever in dealing with the unbelieving world around them Uh, the basic idea is that of saying the right thing at the right time and place of having a sense of propriety and appropriateness and of trying to determine the best means to achieve the higher goal. It's not wise to be needlessly accusatory or inflammatory. Uh, It's not wise or loving. Uh, In addition, Jesus says we're to be innocent as doves. Uh, The dove represents purity, gentleness, innocence. Being true to God's word and uncompromising in proclaiming the gospel does not require and should never include being abrasive, coarse, inconsiderate, belligerent, and blatant uh, towards people. Wisdom and innocence, cunning and gentleness are the handmaids of discretion. We're to be like Jesus. We're to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. But we need to be aware of the persecution we will face, and that's what Jesus explains next. And he talks about uh, two areas from from which the persecution will come. Look at verses 17 and 18. But beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Jesus identifies the wolves that he spoke about in verse 16. They're men. Uh, So the wolves are people who operate as Satan's agents. Uh, Keep your eye out for them. Don't forget that we have to reach people and we have to love all people as God loves them So you don't want to be using castigating language with your friends and neighbors and families about their sin, telling them what an abomination they are and a foul odor in the nostrils of a holy God unless they repent. Um, That's unnecessary. Uh, But at the same time, we don't want to excuse their sin as if it really isn't all that bad. Uh, say, well, is their opposition to us very widespread? Well, look at verse 22. He says, you'll be hated by all because of my name. So it isn't isolated. It's standard fare. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.9, uh, Paul's talking about the apostles. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. He says, they're fools for Christ's sake. Verse 11, to this present hour we hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. In verse 13, We become as the scum of the world, the grime of all things, even until now. Uh, We pointed out last time that term spectacles is very interesting. Uh, When the Roman general won a battle over another nation or city, he was given the privilege of parading his army through the streets. They called it a triumph. And he would parade his army and he would have all the spoils of war that they had taken from the defeated foe. And at the end of the line would come a little group of captives tied together on their way to die in the arena and that's the term that's used here for spectacle Uh, the term roughly treated in verse 11 means to beat or strike someone with your fist and and that word scum means the crud you scrub scrub off a dirty dish or the the dirt in the bottom of a bathtub after somebody takes a bath and those days when they only took a bath once in a great while there would be a lot of scum in the bottom of the the bath. Paul says that's the definition of an apostle. Uh, what is an apostle? He's a spectacle, condemned to death, a fool who's knocked around and beaten with people's fists, who's considered nothing more than filthy scum. Now, going back to our text in Matthew 10 here, you, you have to understand that Jesus' purpose in warning about persecution is not to frighten the apostles and make them suspicious of every human being who was not a believer, Their very mission was to convert the unsaved and to win them to God's kingdom. Uh, But they needed to be warned not to expect the world to receive the gospel and its messengers with open arms. Uh, Satan's world system, of whom every unbeliever is a part, is diametrically opposed to Christ and his people and his kingdom. Uh, Satan will enlist the support of every unbeliever in his fight against God. So Jesus' purpose in this text was to caution the apostles and all of his people not to be surprised when they're ostracized and criticized and even imprisoned and put to death for his sake. So this is another reason why when Jesus said that those who find the narrow gate are few, he knew that many would think they have found the way to heaven, but when persecution comes, they'll bail out, indicating that they were never truly saved in the first place. You know, persecution has a very purifying effect on the church. And Jesus wanted his apostles to know from the very beginning what they were up against so that when the world turned against them, they would stand firm and not be surprised by it. And we must do the same. So let's begin looking at the first way that Jesus says his persecution will come. And this is where we stopped last time. Persecution by religion. Look at the second part of verse 17. For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. So first of all, the wolves attack through religion. The terms courts and synagogues both refer to religious attacks. As we've discussed before, every town and village had a synagogue in it, and it not only served as a place of worship, but also as a place where local court hearings were carried out for violations of the Jewish law. Uh, If someone violated the Mosaic law or their rabbinical traditions, they would be brought before the local synagogue there was a tribunal of 23 judges who would render a verdict. And when those judges rendered a verdict, a sentence would be carried out. And very frequently, the sentence amounted to flogging or scourging or beating the person's back with a whip known as a scourge. Uh, Now, back in Deuteronomy 25.3, the Mosaic law prohibited more than 40 stripes to be given to one who had violated the law. So in order to make sure they didn't violate the law, they always gave 39 lashes. Uh, they didn't want to miscount and give more than 40. Now understand that this was, you got to understand this, this was the Jewish administration of justice, not the Roman one. The Romans had no limit on the number of lashes they gave when they flogged a man. And they had pieces of metal and sharp bone tied to the ends of the thongs of the scourge so that it ripped the skin. Uh, the Jewish scourge was a leather scourge with four thongs which with smaller thongs plated through them. But it did not have any metal or bone attached to it. Uh, the offender would be whipped. And as it took place, one judge would call out the sentence. Another would announce the punishment. one more, One or more of them would do the scourging. And some others would count the lashes. And we know from the writings of Maimonides, a prominent Jewish scholar, that while the punishment was being administered, another judge would read the appropriate scripture passage. uh, Or the rest of the group might even sing psalms. Uh, So that was a part of the function of the synagogue to discipline. If you think church discipline is tough these days you don't have a clue what it was like back then uh, they would actually flog the people in front of the whole congregation uh, it wasn't pleasant it was very painful and it would leave the skin welted and bleeding so jesus says you guys can expect that's going to happen to you uh, they'll deliver you over to the courts and as i said the courts there's referring to these local courts in the synagogues that came under the supreme court of the sanhedrin in jerusalem and you can expect that they will flog you in their synagogues. And that actually did happen. Uh, we know, for example, in Acts 6, chapter 6 and 7, that Stephen was prosecuted before the Sanhedrin uh, and then stoned to death for his supposed blasphemy. In Acts 22, 19, Paul told the Jews that before meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, he engaged in such persecution of believers. He said, in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. Uh, and we know from 2 Corinthians 11:24 24, that he himself was flogged five times in accordance with the Jewish requirements. Uh, he writes, five times I received from the Jews... Forty lashes less one. There's that 39 stripes rule again. Okay? So what Jesus said would happen actually did happen in the early church. One Bible scholar writes, It has often been true that the man with a message from God has to undergo the hatred and enmity of a fossilized orthodoxy. I thought that was a good way of putting it. A fossilized orthodoxy. Uh, The fact of the matter is Jesus himself was accused, tried, and convicted by religious men who wanted to get rid of him. Uh, They were the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and elders. The religionists were the ones who wanted Jesus dead. And so the Jews persecuted the Christians up until 70 A.D. Uh, After the destruction in Jerusalem uh, and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices in 70 A.D., we have no record of Jewish persecution of Christians right up until the present day. Uh, Now, it's true that there have been times when a Jewish person has come to Christ and they've been rejected by their family and synagogue. Um, And although the hostility remains towards Jews who come to Christ and are thus considered heretics, there has been no wholesale persecution of Christianity by Judaism since 70 AD. But let me add that Today, there may be coming the persecution of Christians in the Holy Land itself. Uh, The Orthodox Jews in Israel hold incredible political power. And they continuously pressure the Knesset, which is the Jewish legislature, to pass laws to restrict Christians and to stop the spread of Christianity in Israel. Uh, So it could come to the point where the government of Israel would persecute Christianity. In Revelation 11, we're told that hostility against Christ will cause such persecution to resume during the last days. Uh, In the first half of the tribulation, the beast from the abyss, the Antichrist, who at that point in time will, in the first half of the tribulation, he will be allied with Israel. And it says he will make war with the two witnesses that God sends to Israel to prophesy for 1260 days. That's three and a half years if you haven't figured it out. Uh, they, they seem to possibly be Moses and Elijah, although we can't be dogmatic about that. And it says that he will overcome them and kill them. And it's likely that many of the unbelieving Jews at that point in time will be party to the martyrdom of those two men and will participate in the worldwide rejoicing that's going to take place after their death. So, Jesus says in Matthew 10 that you can expect persecution from Jewish sources. But also, in case you think I'm anti-Semitic, it isn't just the Jews who will persecute believers. Uh, They're just representative of religious persecution. They were the immediate threat to the apostles and believers at that time. There would follow many other religious councils and courts that would and continue to persecute Christians. You see that throughout history. For example, in the time of the Apostle Paul, the Romans persecuted the Christians because of their religion. Romans had many pagan idols and gods, and in the city of Ephesus, they had the Temple of Diana, and when the gospel was preached there, we read in Acts 19 that so many people became believers that the silversmiths stirred up the unbelievers against them because they're afraid they're going to go out of the idol-making business. Uh, And the Romans were committed to emperor worship. So Christianity posed a tremendous threat to the worship of the emperor. Uh, Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, wrote that he was taking steps to check the rapid growth of Christianity because the pagan temples were doing such low business. Um, No one was buying sacrificial animals. No one was buying idols. So they felt that they had to stamp out Christianity because it was affecting the economy of their false religion. Uh, Nero burned Rome and then blamed the Christians and uh, started the persecution of them. He was the emperor when Paul was martyred. Uh, and you all know how the Christians were fed to the lions in the Colosseum in Rome because they refused to worship the emperor. Uh, that persecution continued for over 300 years under the reign of 10 different Caesars. Uh, just being a Christian was enough to get you martyred. You didn't have to have committed a crime other than being a Christian. Uh, By 325 AD uh, there were an estimated 7 million people in the Roman Empire who were Christians with as many as 2 million more who had already been killed for their faith. Uh, There have been countless missionaries throughout the past 2,000 years who've been martyred for the faith. In 1900 uh, during the Boxer Rebellion in China 189 Protestant missionaries and 500 native Chinese Protestant Christians were martyred for their faith in just that year, most of them with the China Inland Mission and the Christian Missionary Alliance. And it continues today, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, listen to this number, 1.6 million Christians were killed during the 10-year period from 2001 to 2010. It dropped by half to 800,000 during the next 10 years from 2011 to 2020. Uh, That's still 80,000 a year, folks. Uh, It's estimated that in North Korea, there are 200,000 people in slave labor camps with 50 to 70,000 of them being Christians. If a North Korean Christian is caught with a Bible, the government may execute or torture or imprison them. If they're imprisoned, The government not only sends that individual to a slave labor camp, they send their entire family to the camp. Uh, And most of them will die in those camps from starvation, disease, freezing temperatures, and overwork. Satan's desire is to wipe out the church, and he'll use whatever means he can to do that. Uh, Even within Christianity, there will be false professors who will try to destroy the church and the people within it, as we read before. Paul says, savage wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. Things have been done even in the name of Christianity against true Christians, such as the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, Henry VIII had William Tyndall, who translated the Bible into English so that common man could read it, strangled to death while tied at the stake, and then his dead body was burned. Uh, During the five year reign of Queen Mary, uh, Queen Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, uh, she had over 300 Christians burned at the stake because they were not Roman Catholics. Uh, great men like Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer. Uh, religion is a persecutor, and it will be that way all the way to the end. Look at, turn over to Revelation 17 for a moment. Revelation 17. When all is summed up, In the ultimate and final persecution during the tribulation, the true saints will be being massacred all over the place. In this chapter, John sees a vision of a woman who represents the final form of world religion. And in verse 5, there's an interesting designation for this final form of world religion. And it calls it Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And as John sees in his vision this fullness of false religion, look what he says in verse 6. Then I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. So what he's saying is that right to the very end, false religious systems have made themselves drunk on the blood of the saints. And that has been true. It is Still true, it will ultimately be true as they slaughter and massacre the believers even during the time of the tribulation. So we shouldn't be surprised then when in Matthew 7:15 Jesus said that there would be wolves dressed as shepherds and they would be ravenous wolves coming in the name of religion. 2 Corinthians 11:14 14 and 15 says Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. So, watch out for religion. Religion masks itself as respectable, but it is a persecutor of the truth. It does everything to destroy the truth, even taking life, if it has the authority to do that, because it's run by Satan, who is a liar and a murderer. So that's the first course of of attack. There's a second one, and that's government. Look at verse 18. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Jesus warned the disciples that persecution would also come from the government. He said, you'll be brought before governors and kings. Governors were Roman procurators, uh, such as Pilate, Felix, and Festus. But the term referred to any government official below the king. Uh, Kings were the heads of state, and they're represented in the New Testament by men such as Agrippa I, Agrippa II, Herod Antipas, and the Caesars. Uh, Why would they be brought before those government officials? Jesus says, why? For my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Let me get that last phrase, uh, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles out of the way first because, frankly, it's a bit difficult to interpret. Some commentators think that this means that believers will be persecuted as they stand as a living rebuke against them, a living testimony against them for the injustices that they are committing. In a sense, their persecution of believers becomes a testimony to them that what they're doing is wrong and it stands against them when they stand before God at the final judgment. Others think that it means that you will be brought before them and in the process you will give your testimony about Christ as Paul did before the Sanhedrin and before Felix and Agrippa. Now I lean towards the second view because of what Jesus says in the verses that follow. Uh, But I think both interpretations are compatible with one another. And so I think they're both legitimate. Now why in the world is the world going to persecute Christians. Jesus says, why? For my sake. For my sake. The world hates Christians because it hates Christ. Every person who identifies himself with Jesus Christ and is genuinely saved becomes a potential target of Satan and his evil forces, including evil men. That the target is Jesus and not Christians themselves is seen in the fact that the more Christ is manifest in us, the more we will be attacked. Uh, Conversely, when we don't manifest Christ, we don't insult the world's wrath. Uh, The Christian who mimics the world or who simply keeps his faith to himself is in little danger from the world uh, because he manifests very little of his Lord's nature. The the world only... uh, Attacks us when it sees Christ in us uh, Jesus affirmed this over in John 15 18 to 21 let me read this to you John 15 18 to 21 if the world hates you know that it hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love its own but because you're not of the world but I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you remember the word that I said to you a slave is not greater than his master If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And that's exactly what the Romans did. They were scared to death of a massive slave rebellion. A lot of people don't realize Rome had suffered through three slave rebellions between 135 B.C. and 71 B.C., but the last one led by Spartacus. Remember the movie? Yep. It lasted for two years. That rebellion involved 120,000 escaped slaves and gladiators. In the end, Rome succeeded in putting it down, but they lost 20,000 soldiers in the process. Uh, so Rome was very concerned about that ki- any kind of rebellion towards Caesar and the Roman Empire. They had 60 million slaves. In the Roman Empire and they taught that slaves and free people could never marry because a slave wasn't considered a person and so such a marriage was utterly and totally illegal in the Roman system but when these people became Christians they were immediately confronted with the truth that in Christ there's neither bond nor free so the Romans saw Christianity as an eminently dangerous problem because it gave slaves equality with everyone else. And so they believed that there could end up they could end up with another slave rebellion. And so Rome was threatened by Christianity and so they began to make up charges against the Christians. One such charge was that they accused them of cannibalism. They misinterpreted the eating of the flesh and the blood of Christ in the communion. They accused them of immorality in their love feast. They accused them of a, re- of a revolution because their eschatology taught that the earth would be destroyed by fire. And, of course, they even blamed them, the Romans blamed them, for burning Rome. They accused them of disloyalty to the emperor because they wouldn't bow down to him. They accused them of breaking up marriages and destroying the family. Anything they could do, they moved against them because they were so panicked by the liberation of slaves to an equality that it might destroy their empire. And so the Roman Empire did persecute Christians. Most of these disciples who heard Jesus say this died at the hands of some government, either the Roman government or the government of some foreign nation where they went as missionaries. And throughout history, governments have attacked the church. After the overthrow of the Russian Tsar by the communists, there was a massive purge of Christians in Russia. The same thing happened in China. And that's what happened in many places throughout history in our world. Governments have moved against the people and they will continue to do that. And finally in the end, during the tribulation, the one world government of the Antichrist will do exactly that. And in Romans 13, uh, 7, uh, I mean Revelation 13:7, you find the Antichrist coming to his full power, and it says, And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And verse 15 says that as many as do not worship him will be killed. So government repression and persecution of Christians will take place right up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Throughout the history of the church, there's always been the same reaction to, to the truth. Because you see, even though government as an entity is ordained by God for the preservation of the social structure, the government is a representation of Satan's work because he's the one animating the actual function. God keeps government together and enough restraining government to preserve human society, but it also manifests the control of Satan. So there's this very interesting tension that government is ordained by God yet manipulated by Satan himself. That's why Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel saw that behind the governments of the various nations, there were demonic forces influencing and controlling the leadership of those nations. And it's the same today. Governments will persecute Christianity because Satan is the prince of this world. When I was a young man, I heard people say, well, I'm certainly glad I live in America. That sort of persecution is never going to happen here. Just wait. If we live long enough, we'll see the time when our government will deny us many of the freedoms we've had, even as we see those restrictions encroaching on us now. As I said earlier, it will start through the denial of tax exemptions for churches and Christian organizations that refuse to hire homosexuals or admit them to their schools. For Christian colleges and universities, it'll mean the loss of accreditation, so a degree from there will be meaningless to an employer other than some other like-minded Christian employer, uh, and it will only grow worse from there. But when believers are suffering persecution from either religious groups or from the government, Jesus says that there's a provision for them to help them in that situation. It's found in verses 19 and 20. It says, but when they deliver you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, For it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. This is why I think the second interpretation of the phrase as a testimony to them and the Gentiles is more likely referring to the believer giving their testimony for Christ to the religious or government officials during that situation. If you are verbally maligned, persecuted, arrested, or physically assaulted or beaten, That can obviously be traumatic, and when that is happening to you, it's difficult not to worry or be anxious. When someone accuses you unjustly of doing wrong, the natural reaction is to speak out in your own defense to try to convince your accuser of your innocence. But Jesus says to us here, don't worry. In fact, Paul later expands on this, telling us in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for what? Nothing. Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But what Jesus promises here that Paul didn't mention is that when we're brought before a religious or civil court, God's Holy Spirit will give to us at that time what we are to say. Those who suffer for Christ will be defended by Christ. If you've Ever read about the martyrs and others who have stood strong in the faith, you find that some of their greatest statements came at those times. It was Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, a disciple of the apostle John, who was offered one last chance to recant before being burned at the stake, and his reply was, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that's prepared for the wicked. His final words as the flames began to burn around him were I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. It was Martin Luther, when standing on trial before the imperial diet of Worms in 1521, He said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. If you want to read more about such statements, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It is a history of Christian martyrs. It was first published in 1563. It can be rather disturbing to read the many horrible ways that they devised to execute believers for their faith. But it's also encouraging to know that those people were given power and endurance and committed hearts of faith from the Holy Spirit to endure such terrible things. And the Lord obviously gave them the clarity of mind and the presence of thought to pull those together, those things when they knew and to speak in their final moments. If you're like me, I've often wondered whether or not I have the courage and the boldness uh, that they had to go through such trials. I mean, if you've read Fox's book, you'll be astounded at the bravery and courage of those who were facing immediate death in the worst ways that the human mind could conceive. But the promise of Jesus is that in those moments, the Spirit of God will bring to your heart, to your mind, the things you know to be true. Jesus didn't say... That I would have the courage and strength now, but rather in that hour, the Spirit will give me what I ought to say. Yes, Daniel. Um, when Jesus, even in that statement, that in John, the promise of the Holy Spirit, He makes that statement there. About mm-hmm. He will send a Helper, and He will teach you and, and, and teach you all things, and guide you in the truth. You mm-hmm. will speak on my behalf. Yeah. And when it comes to that time, you will be able to do so because the Spirit, I'm promising you, will be in you. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's another implication of Jesus' statement here in verse 20. It's this If God gave the disciples the very words to speak in the moments that they were brought before the councils of men, and it was not their words but the Spirit of their Father who was speaking, how much more can we know? that when they sat down to pen the word of God, that they could claim the same promise. I think that by implication, this verse is one of the purest texts in all of the Bible on the matter of biblical inspiration and inerrancy. Uh, Verse 20 says, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Listen to what Bible scholar R.C.H. Linsky writes about this. It's a little bit lengthy, but very good. He says, without previous thinking, planning, imagining at the time of their trials in court, the apostles will receive directly from God just what to utter. It will come into their minds just as it is needed, and thus they will utter it aloud. The apostles indeed made utterance, and yet they do not for their act is due to the Holy Spirit, so that most properly he is the one who does this uttering. Everything that is mechanical, magical, unpsychological is shut out. The apostles will not be like the demoniacs, their organs of speech, and their very wills being violated by a demon. Absolutely the contrary. Mind, heart will operate freely, consciously, in joyful, trustful dependence on the Spirit's giving, who enables them to find just what to say and how to say it down to the last word with no mistake or even a wrong word due to faulty memory or disturbed emotions occurring. This, of course, is inspiration, verbal inspiration, that which none other exists. It is here promised to the apostles for specific occasions, but that does not change what is promised. The argument is quite invincible that if God's spirit inspired the apostles when they were subjected to court trials, he was able to inspire them to the same, in the same manner at other times for interests that were far greater, namely the word for all ages and nations." Quote. Uh, in other words, it's promised that they'll be verbally inspired. And if they were to be verbally inspired by the Spirit of God to speak in their defense at counsel, when it came to the matter of writing Scripture, which is an issue with far wider ramifications, they'll have the same promise, and His Word, His Spirit will equally inspire them as they wrote the Word of God. Well, as Jesus continues, He tells the disciples that hatred and attacks against them will not only come from religious courts and secular governments, it's also going to come from two other sources, their families and society in general. He begins with hatred by the family. Look at verse 21. And brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Persecution can also come through the family, and that's why he's quoting from Micah 7 6 uh, says in uh, where My, Micah says for I came to set a, a man against and down in verses 35 and 36 of Matthew 10 he's quoting from there from Micah for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household uh, in other words it's going to come down to the family During the Roman persecution of believers in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, countless believers were betrayed to the authorities by family members. And that practice has continued throughout history. Today it occurs with regularity in Islamic countries. In certain religious cultures such as the Orthodox Jews, they will hold a funeral service for the family member who is converted to Christianity because they consider that person dead to them. An old German theologian by the name of Wilhelm Friedrich Besser uh, observed that only two things are stronger than natural love. He said one is born of hell and the other is born of heaven. Uh, That's right. There's the love that is born of God and the hatred that's born of Satan. Uh, Both of those are stronger than natural love. The one who loves Christ will love him above all other human relationships. And the one who hates Christ will hate anyone who loves Christ, including his own family. So Jesus says to expect it. If you're looking in your family for some support and comfort, you might find your worst enemy right there in your own house. And that's the way it's going to be. And this conflict will continue all the way into the tribulation. In Mark 13, Jesus is teaching on the signs of his return and the events of the tribulation. In verses 12 and 13, he says that during that time, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all because of my name and the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Interestingly, the reverse of this situation is going to take place during the millennial kingdom. In Zechariah 13, the prophet is speaking about how God will cleanse and purify the land during the millennial kingdom. Remember, everyone who enters the millennial kingdom will be a believer. But their children who were born to them during that time will still be sinners and not necessarily become believers. Uh, That's why even though they will have been ruled by the perfect king for a thousand years, They will still rebel against him the moment Satan's released from the pit. Uh, But during that reign, Jesus will rule, we're told, with a rod of iron. It will be a time when all is restored to creation like it was before the fall. And peace will be established throughout the world. Those who break the law will be immediately punished. And those who rebel against Christ's reign will be executed. And that includes any false prophets who should arise during that time. They'll be put to death in accordance with what has always been God's law, as written back in Deuteronomy 13.5. And so we find in Zechariah 13.3 that during the millennial kingdom, it says, And it, shall, it, it will be that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of Yahweh. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. So whereas in this current evil age, parents may betray their Christian child to the authorities who may kill them, during the millennial kingdom, parents who are faithful to Yahweh will put their faithless false prophet children to death. So Jesus Christ is the focal point of unbelievable conflict in the family. Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Families become persecutors, and perhaps that hurts the most deeply, but that's the way it is. Followers of Jesus Christ are going to be persecuted. False religion reacts because it's generated by Satan. Government reacts because it's under the control of the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, and families react because they cannot tolerate a righteous individual in the midst of their unrighteousness. But it's not just families who hate believers in their midst. Hatred is also going to come against them from society in general but I'm out of time. <laughs> and I see that. So let me stop right here and ask if there are any questions at this point or comments. We still have 7 minutes you're first. <sighs> We're not getting, our money's worth first. not getting your money's worth. For all that you the the wealth that you've given to me. For, the, for this? Yes, Norm? I have a question on verse twenty three. Okay. Um, but we're not there yet, so can I ask it anyway. Is it is it meant to be symbolic or literal where Jesus is saying you'll not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes? I have a lengthy answer for that. <laughs> I cannot I will not answer that now. Okay. I have a lengthy answer. That, you know, yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. In Proverbs, when it says that a brother is born for adversity, is that, do you think that that's referring to... Not, not, not necessarily. It has such broad applications. Remember, Proverbs are general statements, generalisms. Yes. As a matter of fact, I was born Proverbs, um, that states, uh, that actually, we have a in the kitchen. And it states like this, it says, for he who finds me, find, uh, find life, and obtain favor from the Lord. For he who sins against me, injures himself. All those who hate me, love death. And we try to explain it, try to put them there. Your hatred, if you have hatred for the Lord, this is you. This is not someone else out there. This is not your neighbor. God is talking to you. Your hatred for him is not a... You don't find hatred for God if you hate him in your heart. To God in your heart. God knows everybody. Mm-hmm. All we all do pride If you don't come to him in a humble submission as a little child, as he said, then you're you're showing pride toward God. So if you're showing pride toward God, if you don't have to come to him, that you don't need him, mm-hmm. then you really hate him. You, know, you really do. You know, so we we can, we, like, we tell our kids, we can't put apples on the tree anymore. If you're a bad apple, you're a bad apple. I'm <laughs> sorry. But we can't say, oh, wow, look at this is beautiful apple. You didn't go inside the pork. God said that apple wow. yeah. you know, rot. That. And that same thing implies, you know, what she's just saying. Sometimes people think it's hard to say that unbelievers hate Christ. Yeah. I think that sounds so. Yeah. Well, they just haven't been faced, confronted with the truth of the word, because when they are, they get rather upset about it. Rather upset. Yes, Richard. Uh, Was burning at the stake ever practiced by the true church, and how was it finally abolished? It was. It was not practiced by the true church. Uh, it was practiced by Catholicism under Queen Mary, Bloody Mary. Um, and it was... Uh, and Yeah, yeah. And so, so uh, but it was, uh, I don't... I think it was abolished by the rise of Protestantism, as far as I understand. Right, Frank? Is it grew? I don't know if I can say it was even abolished. Because it's still practiced in different areas. Yeah, yeah. Crucifixion is still practiced. Yeah, I don't know if I in the yeah you, Islamic countries today, they're crucifying Christians on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, but that's yeah. not by the church. Or yeah. Yes, Frank. In the midst of all of this, I just want to clarify something. Scripture is very clear about the persecution, just like what happened this week yeah. uh, up in Tennessee